Tonight I want to continue the series of talks I'm doing on that sutta that I handed out to you last week, the Dasadama Sutta, Reflections on the Ten Dhammas. And you don't have to have it out in front of you um, if you don't have it with you, because I probably won't get very far tonight either. So <laughs> we'll see how far I get. If you remember last time I spoke, I did the first two, which were I'm no longer living according to worldly aims and values. And my very life is sustained through the gifts of others. I actually think those two were quite beautiful ones to begin the retreat with as reflections on simplicity and renunciation and the values of retreat and also generosity and gratitude. Gets a little stickier from here on in in the sutta <laughs> in case you don't remember the, the, um, the reflections they actually begin to ask us to really do something, change ourselves and reflect on quite uh, deep and meaningful aspects of our experience and practice. So the third of these reflections that I'll begin with tonight is, I should strive to abandon my former habits. (laughs) Now, it seems a little pejorative, doesn't it? It's kind of an assumption that all of our former habits were bad ones that we should give up. Um, and truthfully, you know, we, most of us do have a lot of bad habits and we don't tend to think of the things that we do that are wholesome or skillful as being habits, but they really are. We have a lot of good habits as well. So I don't think that that translation is that helpful for us. And so I looked up a couple of other translations of this same line and I think they really point us in the right direction. Uh, One was, I must now behave in a different manner. And the second one was, my behavior should be different than from that of householders. So I think that's giving us a sense of what this reflection is about. It's really very similar to that first reflection where we're reorienting to the renunciate life. As I said in my last talk, that being here on retreat in this way, even though we're not ordaining or taking on robes, there's a way in which we really are taking up the renunciate life, the life of, um, as the Buddha often talked about, the homeless ones, where we've left our home and our life as lay people and we're living in a different way, living in a very simple way, a reflective way, practicing quite intensively. So that's the direction of this uh, third reflection, it's about giving up the habits, especially the bad or the dukkha-causing habits of our worldly life, our addictions, our indulgences, our distractions, and our self-centeredness. These are the kinds of things that this reflection is pointing us to look at and how those habits take us away from the ability to be present, the ability to be content in the present moment, the ability to be here and commit ourselves fully to the life of a practitioner on a long retreat. So I'll look at this, um, these tendencies, and particularly the area of habits and addictions. So what is a habit? We're full of so many. I mean, in some ways you could see our lives as progressions of acting out of habits because in some way they're kind of an extension of our conditioning when we're unmindful. This is what the dictionary says. A habit is a recurrent, often unconscious pattern of behavior that is acquired through frequent repetition. 
And another definition is an established disposition of mind or character. So the first one is really talking about behavior that we do, discrete behaviors. And the other one, seeing how habits actually form character. And you can have a certain type of, of, of character developed out of your habits, greedy character or greedy habits or acquisitive or, or renunciate habits. So they, they really go together. One of the authors I, I looked to in um, talking about habits was uh, Dr. Shapiro, who wrote a book on healing. And he just extended this definition of habits by, in this way. He said, any pattern of thought or action repeated many times results in a habit with a corresponding neurosignature or brain groove. The brain is composed of approximately 100 billion cells called neurons. As a, a, a brain groove is a series of interconnected neurons that carry the thought patterns of a particular habit. Attention feeds the habit. When we give our attention to a habit, we activate the brain groove, releasing the thoughts, desires, and actions that are related to this habit. And so when you look at a habit in this way, in the way it actually shifts the neurons or creates pathways in our brain, you can see how habits become almost as it were hardwired, why they become so hard to break. There's actually a cellular response to the repetitive behavior that comprises a habit. So I'm not an expert in this field at all, and just browsing around a little, you can see lots of literature on this because it's an issue for many of us, habits that, that we want to, that causes problems that we'd like to work with. So there's lots of literature out there. I'm just trying to look at it more from a meditative point of view and how it applies to us here in our practice. So how do habits develop? Again, really just through my own understanding, I saw two ways. The first one is, is some formation of behavior that is trying to avoid suffering, or at least replacing one form of suffering with another one that's slightly more bearable. And it really is that process often happening in the beginning completely unconsciously, um, maybe many years ago, that began the seed of a habit that then hardened into this repetitive behavior. Another way I see habits forming is through the desire for comfort. Through repetitive behavior, we have a sense of knowing or, or having a, a, a grasp of our um, experience. And so finding security or comfort through those repeated kinds of behavior. You can see this process right here on retreat. You know, how long have we been here? Actually, it's, it's a week exactly today, tonight, isn't it? Has any of you, have any of you developed any habits here yet on retreat? <laughs> you know, where you go for walking, where you sit in the dining room, what time you like to be in the queue for food... It's amazing how quickly we sort of scope things out and we find what would make us feel comfortable and from that develop a habit that becomes unconscious where we don't make a decision anymore. We just follow through with that habit, that pattern of behavior that we started just a few days ago. But now you can feel the brain kind of 
ticking in and and uh, making that just what you do, and it's not so mindful anymore. Now, of course, there are some very benign habits where you sit in the dining room doesn't really matter very much to anyone else. It might matter to you, but in the scheme of things, it's not a, a, a big decision. But where habits obviously become problematic is when a behavior or pattern that started some time ago becomes a pattern or a groove, and we get stuck in it. It becomes unconscious, so there's no more mindfulness or awareness of the behavior that constitutes the, the habit, and so we just keep doing it. So this is where we need to look at habits, where we get stuck and the mindfulness doesn't find a way in. So it's really helpful, especially on retreat in this fairly neutral environment, to look at this um, type of behavior that we have. And as I say, it's not that we have to throw all our habits out. I think it actually can be quite skillful on retreat to follow a schedule. And it's why schedules are helpful. You know, they give us a a shape to our day. We don't have to do a lot of thinking. Should I go here? Should I do this? Should I do that? Through the schedule and our own habits, we'll come to a day, a day of practice that works for us. Where it becomes a problem is obviously if you go out to your accustomed walking path and someone else is there and it ruins your whole day that they have taken your walking path. Don't they know that that's where I walk every day? When you see that kind of reactivity or holding on to this pattern of behavior, obviously that's where we need to begin to look at this process of forming habits and hold the value of mindfulness and aliveness, really, greater than the sense of comfort, greater than the sense of security that we can gain through these different forms of habit. So it's uh, just, again, an invitation. This is why it's a reflection, to see how does this apply to me in my life here on retreat. So I've talked mostly about just the new habits we acquire, but of course we can bring in all kinds of old habits from our worldly life, as, as the reflection suggests. And so to look at those and see if there's a way that they might be impacting you here. And they can be very subtle. It can really be just in our attitude towards experience of resistance or aversion, holding back, not fully committing. And notice how that may be a a habit that we've developed, a conditioned response that we have to our general experience in our life. Or a habit of over-efforting, striving, and then crashing, and seeing how that can be repeated, both here on retreat and something we do in life. So really to look at both habits you acquire that are recent, but perhaps ones that you may have brought in from your life outside that aren't really supportive of your life here on retreat. Now, a stronger form of habit, an extension of habit, is when it becomes an addiction. Now, I really see a continuum here, um, and you could begin the continuum very early on in our processing, our thinking uh, patterns, and go on from habit to conditioning. I had a quote in here, and I've now seen that it's somewhere in my moving around, I've lost it. 
so James may know it and will have to remind me because I read it this afternoon. So there's really this process and there's a quote that's often attributed to the Buddha but it's, as far as we know, not found in any of the suttas. But it says something like, thought hardens into... Uh, thought hardens into... You say it. Thought hardens into word. The word becomes the deed. The deed becomes the habit. It's not coming across quite as smoothly as I would have liked. The, the thought hardens into the word. The word hardens into speech. Speech hardens into action. The action hardens into habit. And habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and the word and the habit with care. Is that it? And let it spring from love for all beings. And let it spring from love for all beings. It would have been much better if I'd left it in my text. But you can see this progression, how it begins from just a thought out of some conditioned or some, some conditioned behavior or stimulus, memory. And there's this progression. Well, you can, it, and it says from thought to word to, to deed to action to habit to character. And you could do the same extension from habit to addiction and see how it's, it's this strengthening of that need, compulsion of certain behaviors. So again, the dictionary definition of an, dictionary definition of an addiction is a habitual psychological and physiological dependence on a substance or practice beyond one's voluntary control. And what I really see in this strengthening or hardening into addiction is the compulsive nature and the fact that addictions usually have some strong impact on our lives, really in some way determined to to a large extent how we live our lives. Whereas habits, as I said, can be good habits or even benign. So it's, it's a whole strengthening of this process that can really be very problematic. So Buddhism talks a lot about desire, the force of desire, and how related it is to suffering. The first noble truth is there is suffering in life. Suffering is a component of being a human being. The second noble truth is the cause of that suffering is tanha, often translated as desire, literally means craving. Actually, the literal translation is thirst or craving. So you can sort of feel the compulsive nature, almost addictive nature, craving as a, a source of suffering. And I was talking to a yogi the other day. It was, he was mentioning to me this very primal part of ourselves that is programmed to seek pleasure. You know, and, and it's genetically ingrained in us. The drives for food, for sex, to feel safe, to feel secure, because that's what we need to survive. Now, this is quite clear. But as wise human beings, we, we have to look at how those genetically programmed behaviors affect us when we bring wisdom to bear on it, or the way, and more clearly, the way they potentially cause us suffering when we're just driven by them, when our behaviors become unconscious, playing out of those uh, primal kinds of movements. And you can really see, if you look at it in this way, how this practice and these teachings is going against the stream, that there is this... um, 
sense that these looking and turning our awareness onto the force of desire itself is quite radical. I mean, we've been programmed to listen to that force, to follow that force, that this is what we need to do for the continuation of the species or even of our own individual self-preservation and, and continuance. And so there really is a, um, obviously uh, a tension between the practice that we do here and these very primal kinds of urges and can see how addictions and habits can form out of those very primal urges, trying to fulfill those urges for pleasure, to feel safe, to feel secure, to, to get something to feel whole, this, this sense of craving that wants something out there. And Dr. Uh, Andrew Wheel, who's a, a, he's a doctor who's a real advocate of alternative medicine, many of you probably know him, I read a short paper that he presented as a, at a conference of therapists Talking, the title was Why We Are All Addicted. And he, this is what he said. I think that many of our theories of addiction and our ways of looking at addiction are limited because they don't take into account the full spectrum of addictive behavior. As an example, let me read you a definition of addiction from this conference. After talking about how addiction extends far beyond the realm of chemical dependence, it then says, in the broadest sense, addiction can be defined as an attitude that sees various aspects of the material world as exclusive sources of satisfaction. Addiction, understood in this way, represents a prominent feature of the entire Western civilization, which has lost the connection with its inner resources. So I thought, well, that's a pretty broad definition of addiction. Dr. Wheel goes on to say, that, to my mind, is far from being a broad conception of addiction. And it surely does not just involve the Western world. That's a very limited view. First of all, if it's the attitude that various aspects of the material world make us feel all right, what about sexual addiction? Is that a material addiction? It may involve physical organs and other people, but what we're really talking about is an addiction to an inner experience. What about addiction to thought? That's something hardly ever discussed. It is discussed, it's ever discussed in the Western world. It is discussed in Buddhism. In Buddhist psychology, addiction to thought is seen as a serious impediment to enlightenment. That is one of the reasons you meditate, to try and get some freedom from thought. So you could look at universities as monuments to thought addiction, (laughs) where you are rewarded for the beauty or complexity or novelty of the thoughts that you produce. Given that social context with those social rewards, why would you ever think that thought could be addictive? And if your conception is that an addiction addiction involves something material and external, then that doesn't fit. So you don't pay any attention to it. I maintain that the essence of addiction is craving for an experience or object to make yourself feel all right. It's the craving for something other than the self. Even if that's within the realm of the mind, I also feel that an addiction is something that's fundamentally human. It affects everyone, 
And here he's referring to this primal nature of this addictive movement. If you look at those urges in that way, that craving, that craving, that desire as an addiction. Now, I don't agree with everything he said there, but I think it's pointing to something interesting, how if we look at our patterns of behavior in this broad way, we can see how much is following from craving. How much is what we do is this endless quest to find satisfaction or happiness in all these places that, as the Buddha said, are the very things that are causing us suffering or that can never really bring us true happiness. So it's just using the language of habit and addiction to really talk about the Buddha's teachings and to see it in this way. It was a little shocking to me, actually, to see these as addictions and to broaden that, that definition of addiction. Because we tend to see, as he was pointing out, that the many things that are obviously addictions, smoking, drinking, drug use, gambling, you know, those classic things that we think of as being addictive. But so much of what we do comes out of that unconscious craving for seeking pleasure and forms into, as that very garbled quote that I gave to you earlier, um, forms into habit and then character. Even very simple things that seem like don't really affect us in that much. But do you know people that are addicted to checking their email? You know, as soon as they get up in the morning or five times a day or whatever it is, where that sense of connection through the email or even checking your voice messages. It, what I really see this doing is feeding into that great quote that Howie read the other story, the article on busyness. You know, I'm busy, I'm important, I need to be engaged in the world in this way. It can become an addiction when we are just um, doing this habitually to feed this sense of self that gets created. So you might look again, as I said, through this reflection, what is it that you're addicted to that you mightn't have looked at in quite that way before? Always having the TV on at home or the radio on if you drive. Again, it seems like for many people it's just something they do. But there's an addictive nature to that unwillingness to be in quiet, in silence needing to fill the space. The space is uneasy, uncomfortable. You know, I just tossed out a few things as I was thinking about it. You can make your own list. Eating when not hungry, where it's really out of a sense of wanting to comfort ourselves. Going shopping. For many people, this becomes a habit, if not an addiction, to make us feel better. Addictions to work and money, to being busy. All kinds of things. We can be addicted to getting high, even natural highs through meditation or various other forms of spiritual activities, dancing, chanting, mantras. They can become habit-forming or addictions because we don't feel right unless we have them. There's a compunction there, a compulsion. And so obviously we look at all this in the context of practice, of mindfulness practice, What we're trying to do is to become clear, to become mindful. And so we really need to bring our attention to these patterns. So we're wanting to become awake. And addictions numb us. Addictions dull us. Addictions send us down 
um, pre-programmed patterns of behavior. And it's the antithesis to what we're trying to do here. As we begin to look at this force in the mind, this quality in the mind of habit or addiction, it's really helpful to see what's being fed by the habitual behavior or the addictive behavior. So often it's this sense of self. And, you know, without a meditative take on this, for most people that's not even on their radar to look at what might constitute a sense of self. It's not even a problem. But as we see through our meditation practice how this crystallizing, this defining into self can be both limiting but also a source of suffering, we begin to look, want to see the behaviors that perpetuate that sense of selfing. And so the sense of self manifests in so many different ways. That's kind of the archetypal or primal um, cause of, of the, or, or what gets fed by uh, habits. Being, feeling important, as I said before, or feeling loved or wanted. We can do behaviors to feed those desires or forces. A big one is this sense of security or comfort that somehow we're in control, that if we do these mechanical behaviors, as we get home, that, you know, we put our keys down here, we switch the light on here, we do this, and we go and do that, and we go and do this, and there's just this little ritual that makes us feel safe. So many ways in which we do that. It's to bring some familiar, familiarity into what we're trying to avoid seeing as a changing world a fleeting world, a world of uh, temporariness. And so we put these behaviors on top to try and bring this sense of comfort in, of, of being in control. Or this movement towards ecstasy, ecstatic feelings, feelings of, of um, bliss, can be to avoid feeling the everyday, or the mundane, or even the dukkha. We move towards these feelings of, of ecstasy to not really face our reality. So life is kind of looking for that next hit of a high. And so as we look at the habits in this way, we begin to look at the very nature of desire itself. This very root or primal force in us. And the skillfulness comes in separating the object or the habit or the pattern of behavior from that force of desire and seeing them as two separate things. And it's only when we begin to do that that there can be the possibility of actually disentangling and taking the power out, the juice out of that kind of behavior. Again, back to Dr. Shapiro who gave that definition of the hard wiring in the brain that um, habits form. It says, the good news is that the brain is malleable. We can change our thoughts and behavior by recru- recruiting, recruiting new cells to form new brain grooves. Every thought and action is recorded within the interconnected nerve cells, and each repetition adds new depth to the brain groove. If we repeat a thought and action enough times, a habit is formed. Continued repetition strengthens the power of the habit. 
Inattention and lack of repetition weakens the power of the habit. These principles apply to the formation of both good and bad habits. Positive thoughts and actions create good habits. Negative thoughts and actions create harmful habits. Well, you can really see how this is what we're doing here, is trying to condition these habits of mindfulness, habits of generosity and joy and calm. But it's, what's really fascinating is to see that scientists are actually beginning to study this. They've long been looking at this process of conditioning in the mind and how the brain is um, actually changed, the neural pathways are changed through habit. They're actually beginning to look at how meditation affects that programming. And a lot of people are doing this work, but there's one scientist, Richie Davidson, who is at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who is specializing now in measuring the effects of meditation on experienced meditators. He actually, um, one of the papers that I saw that he's written is, long-term meditators self-induced high-amplitude gamma synchrony during mental practice. So that's the kind of level he's talking about. But basically what it means to us is meditation literally and physically affects the brain. And so he's, uh, Richie Davidson is doing um, a lot of work with, or th- with the uh, uh, support of the Dalai Lama, who's fascinated by science. You may know this about him. He, he began in his early uh, years of taking apart watches and tinkering with radios and is still fascinated by science and has um, started this program allowing um, scientists to bring very sophisticated testing equipment to test monks who've been practicing for 10, 20 years in solitude and really seeing the effects of meditation on, on the brain. But to actually, you know, it's one thing to, you know, test a Tibetan Lama that's practiced in solitude for 20 years. You can sort of say, yeah, his brain might be a little different. But... To test this theory, this past fall, Richie Davidson brought his testing equipment to the three-month retreat where he tested the yogis, much like you yogis here at a two-month retreat, at the beginning and the end to see if there was any measurable distance in certain um, measurable things in the brain. And now he actually came at the end of the retreat and gave a talk, which I listened to, and some of it was, you know, the things he was testing were beyond me, but literally testing the physical nature of um, some aspects of the brain, sometimes through blood test, where they could look at something that, that um, weakens through stress and grows and strengthens through um, calming practices or, or, or soothing kind of states of being. Um, and testing the acuity of of meditators' awareness. So it's quite fascinating to see what uh, his results will be. And, of course, they they never say early on what's going. But when we would push him, he would say, it looks really interesting. It looks like this stuff actually works in the space of three months on people where they could get a base testing, a base level of how they were coming in and how they going out. So it's quite fascinating to see that we'll actually be able to say that science says that this stuff works. It'll be quite amazing, actually. 
So, because what they used to think was that the brain, after a, a very early age, was kind of set. Um, and that it didn't grow very much, it didn't, didn't change very much, and if there was damage to the brain, it didn't uh, heal very well. And they're now discovering that this actually isn't true, that the brain is quite plastic, and is built, it actually is built to change in response to training. Um, and that it, re- it ge- regenerates new cells every day. He said 5,000 c- cells a day. And that they've seen that stress impairs that process and calm and equanimity supports it. And he really thinks that through this kind of testing, they'll actually be able to recommend to people what kind of meditation is most suited to their like brain functioning. It's going to be amazing. And I don't know whether that's going to be good or bad, but... Um, <laughs> I think just having this validity that, you know, it's, it's tested that the, the brain and things that are measurable, measurable things of well-being are actually improved by meditation. So we're hoping that our meditators at the three-month course did a good job and actually um, improved those statistics. There are some of them here. I won't name who they are, but um, I'm sure that they did, that there's going to be really interesting results because... We know, being teachers, the profound effect that this meditation practice has on us, certainly, but having the, for- the good fortune, the privilege of working with people on many retreats and just seeing the change over time. I don't have, I don't have any doubt about it, but it's always nice to be uh, validated. So that's, that's what's really um, positive about this work that we do here. And there is, in a way, where you could say, this is what practice is about. It's about deconditioning these old, unskillful habit patterns of constriction, of resistance, of aversion, um, on an even more subtle levels than that, and reconditioning or conditioning new skillful patterns of equanimity and openness and receptivity of clarity, of mindfulness, to see that this is possible, to feel it within your own experience and take that faith and trust and being willing to work at in those areas of your life that you know are causing difficulty, whether it's on a, a gross level of something that you really know you need to change or even these more subtle levels that I've been talking about tonight. It is possible. Part of the... the um, challenge or the the difficulty we have with habits is we don't believe it's possible to change them. We feel stuck. We feel caught in, that's why we call them habits, we feel caught in that patterning. And really taking in this power, this potential you have for growth and for change, I think is one of the biggest gifts we can give ourselves to trust ourselves and our capacity to grow in wisdom, in compassion. It's why the metta practice is so profound, because we see how this repeated turning back again and again to the phrases and the well-wishing trains the mind and heart in that direction. We see that power for ourselves and just need to have the faith and the trust to apply that same motivation, that same intention to whatever areas of our life we feel need to be held in that space of tr- transformation, 
of moving to greater and greater degrees of freedom and lightness and happiness. And it's really possible. So I'll move on to the next of the reflections. As I said, they get a little stickier here on in. The fourth reflection. See if this raises anything, any, touch, presses any buttons for you. Does regret over my conduct arise in my mind? For many of us, this is really a hot button. You know, whether we're talking about our life prior, you know, extending back over years, or even on retreat, we're so prone to self-judgment, self-criticism. So I really want to encourage you to work with this skillfully as a support to practice, not to bring more judgment of your actions in. But this sense of um, review or looking at one's actions and feeling, uh, having strong emotions come up around that is really common on retreat. Many of you have probably had this experience before. If you haven't yet, you will. I mean, I, I don't know of anyone for whom this doesn't happen. There's something about sitting in the silence, paying attention to our inner experience that just invites anything that feels unfinished, anything that feels unresolved, anything that's sort of like the sand in the oyster and that I really feel it ultimately does become the pearl because it's only through the willingness to turn towards those experiences and bring them fully into the light of our mindfulness, of our hearts, do we actually begin the work of transformation. So this life review in AA, they call it the moral inventory, this, this sense of all of these old stories coming up in meditation. I'm sure you all know what I mean. It's it just, it happens. And, and, uh, it can be distressing. You know, obviously, as we say always, we, we're on retreat to find a sense of ease and well-being and sense of um, wholeness in ourselves. And what hits us as we sit down are these memories and, and, and irritations and fears and regrets about things we've done or have, we've experienced in our life. We, and we just feel compelled. You know, how many of you have made a list of the ten worst things you ever did and just kind of go over that? It's like the, the tooth that ache that you just keep going back to over and over and over again. There's some compunction that we have to, to bring those up. But I think it's a very actual healthy urge, if we work with it skillfully, of actually allowing these old experiences. And sometimes it's kind of like, when I'd forgotten all about that, you know, where did that come from? You know, something you did in sixth grade, you know, where you, you hid something from someone or, you know, a mean thing you said to your sister that was long forgotten. Um, hopefully she's forgotten, but it comes up in all its, all its glory and it just, oh, how could I have done that? But this is the beginning of the healing, this, this willingness to say, yes, you know, that this actually happened. It's why we think it's so helpful to do the forgiveness practice that James taught the other day, where we acknowledge those three different aspects. We acknowledge um, the hurts that we may have done others. To the extent possible, we forgive those that others have done to us. 
And of course, we extend to forgiveness to ourselves, both in the ways we've harmed others, but also the ways we've harmed ourselves. So this is really important to bring to this practice as these memories come up, as they will do. And I can certainly remember going through that process myself. And it's not like it finishes. You know, there's always new things that will come up that some, in the quietness there's this, this, as I said, this freshness to them and the subtleties of our experience come alive. But in the early years of my practice, I can just remember literally physically cringing as these memories would come up. You know, how could I have done that? And a lot was um, what I did to other people, but a lot was ways I behaved myself. And so in ways I harmed other people, but ways I really harmed myself, didn't take care of myself, respect myself, did things that were so unskillful and, and you know, really out of a lack of respect for myself. And I would just cringe and you know, was so glad that all the people of that time were a thousand miles away, actually about 5,000 miles away from where I, where I was at the time. But it was a physical, you know, rejection and, and really a lot of suffering around that. But I really saw, as I look back now, at this process where at first it was cringing. But they, would, they kept coming. The cringing didn't keep them away. The memories kept coming. It moved then to acceptance. I just had to say, yes, I did that. Oh, yes, that happened to me. They did that to me. And so just this acceptance. There was a kind of heaviness in it, but it really was an acknowledgement of the truth of things. But then it really moved to the transformation where what happened was compassion, where I just really acknowledged that that was the best I could do at the time. That was all I knew. That was the only way I could respond to that experience, to my own inner confusion and pain and lack of skillfulness. And so the compassion is really where the true healing comes, where we see everything. And there's not a sense of having to push it away, hide it from others, but just really feel the suffering that was there and bring in the compassion, the acceptance. In this area of conduct, the Buddha talks about two wholesome factors that he says are the bright guardians of the world. (coughs) These are the factors of Hiri and Otapa. the literal or the, the traditional translation of these, I always kind of grimaced a bit at. Hiri and Otapa is moral shame and moral dread. Uh, it's a very Victorian kind of translation, and I think these, these uh, qualities have more subtle aspects in that. I actually think better translations might be for Hiri conscience, just that sense of, of uh, ethics, and Otapa fear of wrongdoing the sense of the impact our actions have on the world. These two are really what enable us to live in community, to live in harmony, this sense of our place in society, in the world, and and how our actions affect each other. So Hiri is this uh, sense of morality or ethics, the values that prevent us from wrongdoing, or the sense of feeling unease at the thought of doing an unskillful act. This, this can seem a little Victorian, 
It doesn't, it's, they're not qualities that we talk about a lot, but as practitioners, we'll really see how these are sources of strength for us, that our refinement or our attentiveness to this quality becomes stronger and stronger. And otapa is um, the fear of wrongdoing, of, of actually seeing our actions in context and not wishing to harm others or be seen to harm others. So this sense of ourselves in the context of community. And especially with regard to people we respect, that, that we want to be seen as um, skillful, as not harming others. Now, as we work in this area or look at this area of our actions, it's really important to distinguish between guilt and remorse. Remorse, I really feel, has a skillful component to it. It is actually a healthy kind of attitude because it expresses regret over unskillful behavior where we acknowledge that we did something that harmed ourselves or others. But what is uh, important about remorse is we learn from that behavior. We actually grow. We feel the pain of it, and we feel that there's been a transformation about that particular pattern. In guilt, we add shame and judgment, and we feel defined by or stuck in that past behavior. And that's where it's problematic. You know, the willingness to acknowledge that we've caused harm and grow from that, I think, is essential to a healthy psyche and to living uh, a skillful life. But being feeling guilt or shame and feeling constricted and stuck in that, that's not so healthy. That's really just um, adding pain to whatever pain was already there. So really to work very skillfully in this area of ethical conduct. It's why the precepts are really helpful as our guideline um, and why we call them training guidelines, practices. They're not commandments. We acknowledge that we're human beings and that we can perhaps um, make mistakes. And it's wonderful to practice with them here on retreat where it's such a supportive environment and our life is simpler and a big area of our um, transgressions is taken away from us. You know, so much of how many times do you wish that words were physical and you can kind of take them back, you know, just I wish I hadn't said that. And here on retreat, hopefully it's all just happening in your mind and the others aren't getting the benefit of your jewels of wisdom. Uh, For myself, I know on retreat, I'm really very uh, conscious of this guideline of noble silence, never speak to anyone, but I can't tell you the number of notes that I've written, but never sent. You know, so I just write them in to the managers. Why don't you do this? And this isn't working. And this is, and I've, you know, I actually have probably written three notes in all the time I've been on retreat, but the, the tendency is there to want to express, but it's much skillful, more skillful, especially on retreat, to just keep it within, to keep it, uh, as part of your practice. But in this simplicity of silence, there's also a complexity because obviously we're interacting, but without the the, um, 
being able to smooth the way through all of the excuse me's and do you mind and can I do this? And we have to learn this kind of dance that we do in silence where, you know, we bow or we step back or we move a little more slowly, a little more quickly and hope the other person is really feeling our good intention. But sometimes, you know, we're not mindful. And then there's a noticing of someone right behind us and worrying, did I, you know, push in ahead of them or did I seem clumsy or did I take something that was theirs? And the mind just spinning out in this. And it can be painful. Um, This sense of worry about how my behavior might have affected someone else. Really to know that we often take, blow these things out of proportion this, this um, concept called yogi mind, I'm sure you're all familiar with it, where some little thing that we've done or has, we think has been done to us just looms so large and kind of defines our day. Um, Carol would talk the other day about the window wars that would go on at IMS where the managers would get notes that would get more and more frenetic as people were advocating for open or closed windows and it was like that was the be-all and end-all of their experience was having the windows open or closed. So this, to be really aware of this if it's happening for you on retreat and just to trust your own good intention that that is you know, what we can take. As the Dalai Lama says so wisely, we can take refuge in our good intention and do forgiveness practice again if you feel it's necessary, even asking forgiveness in silence of someone else, but not carrying these you know, things that happen on retreat around. It just, it just is an impediment to our practice. But it can be a real chance to refine our behavior, to really have this sense of our day being this beautiful kind of dance of interactions that are very generous in allowing someone to go ahead of us or holding open a door for someone. Just these simple things that we can do that can kind of ease the day. And not to judge ourselves if we feel we've been clumsy or haven't... um, looked like a good meditator, you know, that that image we all have of what a good meditator looks like. That's not so helpful. And so we can then begin to just enjoy what the Buddha called the bliss of blamelessness. Really that sense of integrity, where we're living from our highest values. And when we don't, that we accept that and offer forgiveness. This is really important to bring these two together. You may know that the Buddha, when he began teaching, especially lay people, didn't begin by teaching the meditation. He taught sila really early in uh, sila ethical conduct. Actually, the the sequence he used to to teach was dana sila bhavana, generosity, ethical conduct, and then meditation. And I think we don't emphasize the first two enough. You know, we're really big on meditation. Obviously, here we are for a month or two months into meditation. But we haven't taught or given enough uh, emphasis to these other two. And Tanasaro Bhikkhu, um, who's a, a Western monk, who is quite a keen observer of um, Buddhism as it comes to the West, and any flaws that he may detect therein, uh, had this to say. 
He said, we've got it backwards here in the West. He said, first we meditate, which is above and apart. So we're interested in meditation. We go to day-longs or whatever. Finally, we come on a retreat. We meditate. At the beginning of a retreat, we're, t- we're, to- we're told about the precepts, or we have to follow ethical, ethical guidelines. And then at the very end, we hear a talk on dana or generosity. It's totally backwards from the way the Buddha taught. And I can really see the truth in that. I mean, I think when we brought this practice over here to the West, um, that we did neglect some of the foundations that made it a life, made it a complete way of living. And these other practices of dana and sila, of um, how we are in the world, are just become important to us and we find that our practice as, in, as, as, as it deepens through our intensive practice is expressed by how we live in the world. So it's more than just being a good meditator. It's really about discovering this way of being that's a whole. The word I love that refers to this um, where behavior is ahimsa. means non-harming that we actually live in the world with an intention of non-harming. As I keep emphasizing, it's not that, that, that we don't harm inadvertently and sometimes deliberately, but our ultimate intention is that of holding ourselves and others in this sphere of well-being, of, of well-wishing, of ahimsa. And it really allows the mind to settle if we do that, if we actually come from that place of care and attention and love, appreciation of ourselves and appreciation of others. So again, I just got through two of the ten, so obviously I'll continue this. um, And I hope that you take this in, as I keep emphasizing, not out of any sense of judgment or guilt or ways you should be, but as opportunities for reflection. It really is to look at what supports you being here in a wholehearted way, feeling connected and supported and committed to your practice here. So thank you. Let's sit for a moment. This talk was given by Sally Chloe at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 10, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio.